You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There were demons that sought to claim your soul for darkness. There were ghosts and spirits frequently malevolent. The dead did not always lie quietly. Followers of all faiths knew these truths. You walked a twilight country road at peril, and when night fell with or without moons, it was madness to be abroad. You could die in a ditch of a fall having lost sight of the road. You lived your life in intimate proximity to its sudden end. Prayers were more intense because of this. Help was needed under sun, moons, stars, and some reason to hope for what might come after. Laughter was also necessary and found, in spite of or because of these close and terrible dangers. Simple pleasures, music and dance, wine, ale, dice and cards, harvests end, the taste of berries on the bush, tricking the bees from a hive full of honey. Warmth and play in a bed at night or in the straw of a barn. Companionship, sometimes Love. Guy Gabriel Kay is known for basing his novels on historical research, which he then uses for a creative reimagination of history. He's the author of The Fiona Var Tapestry, a fantasy trilogy comprised of The Summer Tree, The Wandering Fire, and The Darkest Road. He's the author of the novels Tagana, A Song for Arbonne, Isabel, River of Stars, Under Heaven, The Lines of Al Rasan, and The Last Light of the Sun. And Beyond This Dark House, a book of poetry. He's written two books in the Serentine Mosaic, Sailing to Serentium and Lord of Emperors. His newest entry into this unorthodox series is Children of Earth and Sky. Thank you for joining me, Guy. It's nice to be here again, Rick. Guy, as I was reading this book, you know, I've heard your work described as alternate history, but that's not at all what it is. I think you do something very different which is to ingest history and then create something like it, but completely different. Uh, these novels of Serantium are really beautiful and based on a very complex history. Talk about uh, the decision to undertake this huge project. Um, they're all huge projects. <laughs> One of the reasons I'm, I'm slow is because I'm taking on a lot. Uh, the... Um, the quarter turned to the fantastic that you're referring to, and that's not my phrase. That was a reviewer's phrase a number of years ago, and I've appropriated it because I like the I like the sound of it, and I like the sharpness of it. I do, as you say, take real history. I spent a long time researching it, uh, corresponding with uh, cornering academics who have spent their lives working in a given period. And I ingest, I absorb, I make notes about as much of it as I can. And then I shift it very slightly towards a near Europe or a near China as opposed to the actual thing. And we could talk all morning about the underlying reasons why I'm happiest working this way. But one of them is that I truly believe that when we are writing about the past, when we're looking at characters and figures from the past, we are guessing. We're making the best, most educated guesses we can, but we do not know, as I sometimes put it, what Henry VIII's favorite position in bed was. <laughs> and I'm happier, I'm happier creating characters, sometimes inspired by real people, but I'm sharing with my reader right off the top, from page one, from the time you open the book, that these are analogous to evoking real people, but we both know that they're not 
the real people, and I'm not pretending that they are. And I find this both an ethical and a creatively liberating way to approach the, the, the problems that history throws at us today. I think that's so interesting because um, you, the way you cre- create these stories is they speak to us of a history, they feel like history, but they also have the more direct truth, allow you to speak the more direct truths that fiction allows you to speak without dissembling, having to say, well, this is kind of like what's happened. I think fiction can do exactly that. Uh, Somebody once said, I don't entirely agree with the simplicity of it, but it's a great quote, and they say that uh, truths are not the same as facts. (laughs) And you can know the facts of history and miss the truths of it, just as you can know the facts of the present day and miss the truths of it. And good fiction or ambitious fiction is after sharing writer to reader some of those perceptions of truth in in my case in the past. Uh, I feel fairly strongly that we are, as someone else said, condemned to be eternally children if we don't know things that happened before we were born. I think there are a great many important truths, to return to that word, that the past has to offer for today. And my fiction over the last quarter century has generally been an exploration of of aspects of that, while still trying to keep you up till three in the morning reading. (laughs) Well, I I have to say that's true, because no matter how um, historically the, how great the historical veracity of this is, which it feels really like a great history, and how compelling the uh, fictional stories are, there's also a real degree of, wow, this makes me think about what's happening right now and how uh, we never learn from history. So. There's, a, there's a common phrase used with us, we're, we're always fighting the last war. <laughs> and... What, what I take from that is, in fact, the mistake made in fighting the last war, because the current war, the current crisis, may be evocative of, similar to the previous one, but if we conduct ourselves now in exactly the, say, the opposite way if we lost the last war, the same way if we won the last war, we're making a mistake, potentially. Um, it's just as problematic sometimes to know about the past and misinterpret it. I've written books about this, about Mm -hmm. people and cultures that misunderstand their own history. There's an inexhaustible mine of material in all of this, Rick. (laughs) You know, when you were talking just then, I was thinking of an old David Bowie song that I really like called Always Crashing in the Same Car. And I was (laughs) thinking that we're always losing the same war. Yes. (laughs) In a different way, but that's... What, what is happening here. This is such a big uh, canvas for you. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Lines of Oversan kind of sets the scene, and the other two books flesh it out, and this book takes it forward, what, a thousand years? That's why it's not a sequel, Rick. That's why it's a standalone book. Oh, absolutely. I'm using, I'm using the, uh, if you will, the leg up I get from already having a geographic set up for that near Europe that I've explored before. And I'm using the religions that I'd set up way back when, I should say, with Lions of Awasan. But it's not following upon in any direct way, because if you're going 900, 1,000 years later, you're not a sequel. <laughs> no, not at all. And I, for me, the feeling of this book, the prose, you find a really interesting way with the way you write to create a sense of humor and joy. This is a pretty funny book, uh, yet it's compelling and sweet as well. Um, It reminds me, if anything, of a cross between Shakespeare's comedies and Shakespeare's histories. And I'm wondering how much of that kind of plotting and language you have absorbed, or is that deliberate, or is that just you reread uh, King Henry the 
<laughs> you know what, first of all, you're making an author very self-conscious because that's about as high a compliment as you can give anyone. About the only thing you could ever say to me that would make me almost as happy would be to say that I could turn the double play like Ozzie Smith used to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, of course, I am deeply, deeply infused with an admiration for many aspects of, of Shakespearean work, uh, profoundly so. Uh, Henry V is a really good example if you were going there because Henry V among those is one of the plays where he works both the aristocracy and the common man, the common soldier in fact, mm -hmm. uh, the people hanging out in taverns in London. And I've always been interested in playing with, exploring, developing that range of social class and character. What's new in this book and it was a conscious decision, uh, is that all of my protagonists this time around, the five major characters in Children of Earth and Sky, none of them are power players. None of them are the mighty in this world. There are emperors and caliphs and potentates of the, of the various faiths and empresses and aristocrats, and none of them are at the center of the book, they're the backdrop. And what I wanted to do in this novel, really, it was, it was pretty clear in my own mind, this aspect of my purpose, was to write a book about people trying to get on with their lives, <laughs> variously, not in the same way, because they don't have the same ambitions, mm -hmm. but to get on with their lives at a time when the mighty people of the day were brewing up a colossal war, a conflict that sweeps up very, very ordinary people into its vortex, if you will. But they're not the people making the war. They're not the people defining it. They're the people trying to survive it in different ways. And that was a deliberate purpose. I thought this one would be a book about the non-powerful and to see if I could use, as you put it, an epic scale to suggest that these lives are just as worthy of our empathy, of our attention, of our focus as the kings and princes and empresses. You know, that it's that's really odd because the very first quote I pulled out of this book was one a paragraph that said, not everybody, not everyone could be a master. You could shape an honorable life somewhere below that of accomplishment, level of accomplishment. It felt like an important thought. <laughs> I guess well, I it's thought not it odd, Rick. It means you're reading carefully. <laughs> yes, of course it's important to me. Uh, one of the things I, I thought was really wonderful about this book was the way that you weave in the politics and the commerce of the time and you weight them equally you kind of like in a way these days in our current world i think things are a little bit tilted we seem to think at least there's an appearance that politics is more important in controlling than commerce that's i think a deception and i think that you by the way you weight things in this book you highlight that difference Thank you. First of all, yes, that was in my mind. You've got it again. Uh, that's several points for you already in this interview. <laughs> um, there's a lot of spying mm -hmm. and a lot of intrigue and a lot of diplomacy going on. And one of the things I realized in my reading about the period was that a lot of that spying is uh, industrial spying, as we'd put it today. It's not state versus state to gain an edge in politics or war. Mm -hmm. It is business versus business to gain an edge in the price of grain or silk. And the espionage, which is a big part of it, the, the fact that everybody is watching everybody, is partly political military, but as you say, also partly uh, commercial. One of the ways that in the Renaissance, and this is inspired by 15th century Europe, the mm -hmm. eastern part of Europe, because that's less explored, and I like finding parts of history that haven't been as widely covered by other writers. So this is the Renaissance where we all know Michelangelo and da Vinci and the Borgias and the Medici, but I'm moving slightly east from there 
to parts of Renaissance history that aren't as much explored. I really like that aspect of it because you kind yeah even on the map you can see kind of the the parts of uh, of the faux Europe you create that we know are kind of blank and you're over on the east. They're side. over a bit to the west. Yeah. We've moved east a little bit. Absolutely right. And what's interesting when I talked about uh, people trying to get on with their lives is that. The fact that there's a war going on or a war pending does not mean that every merchant, every fisherman, every farmer is caught up in that preparation for war, thinking about that war. A merchant trading with the quote-unquote enemies of the East doesn't want to stop trading just because a king somewhere <laughs> says they're our enemies, if he's making good money that will feed his family, feed his employees, build him a bigger house, maybe even allow him to buy a painting by a master painter. They want to get on with that trade and commerce. And that was one of the underlying conflicts in the Renaissance. Places like Venice or Dubrovnik, which are both in my book in that quarter turn shift, didn't want to stop trading with the Ottoman Empire just because the Pope or the Holy Roman Emperor was at war with the Ottomans. The merchants are saying, that's not my problem, that's your problem. <laughs> well, I think that's so interesting because the, especially your Dubrovna is a, essentially a state that has no power except the power of commerce. And I really love the way that the balancing act that the people who run the city they understand this. They're working that as best they can, and they rock it. I think that's really charming to see that play out. You know what, Rick? I thought it's the power of commerce, and it's also what comes with that, which is the power of really sharply focused diplomacy. Mm -hmm. If you have no army, if you can't assert yourself in military political terms, you need to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> right, exactly. In terms of, maybe knife's the wrong metaphor. You're not stabbing anyone, but you are the quickest, sharpest, most focused of all the places because your survival depends on keeping everyone reasonably content with your existence. <laughs> right. Because yeah. they could squash your existence if they decided to. And uh, Ragusa, which is the old name for Dubrovnik, which inspired my city-state, was exactly like this. They were trading, negotiating, bribing, double-crossing quietly. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> now, uh, you talked about the five characters who drive this, and I think that the characters in this are so compelling and so wonderful. I mean, you just really love all these people. So uh, tell, tell us about the creating these characters, and, and do they arise? Do you think of them before, or do you just create them out of prose, write their first scene, and let them go? I do not have little gremlins giving me advice in the <laughs> middle of the night. I wish I did. Um, the characters tend to grow from the setting and the themes, Rick. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, one of the uh, staples in all of my work is that I start with finding a period, a time, a place, and things I want to explore and develop there. And from that, the idea of what sorts of characters will fit and suit those purposes. And I think that lets them be organic mm -hmm. to, the, to the context of the novel. The biggest challenge in this book, and I knew it from the beginning, I worried about it from the beginning, so I put a lot of energy into it, was the idea that I had to keep them in balance when you mentioned that you're drawn to all of the characters. Right. That makes me feel very good because mm -hmm. that's not easy to do. Mm. When you have multiple focal points and you have uh, characters who are center stage at different points of a novel, mm -hmm. but then because they move off in different directions, they may be off stage for a while for someone else to come on stage, You've got to keep them in balance so the reader remains engaged and emotionally, psychologically, intellectually invested in the book as you move from one to another. I had one character I knew was a danger to me. She's a danger. Uh, this is Danica, oh, who yeah. is my raider pirate woman. 
So she actually, this is insider trading information, she actually, with the first chapter I wrote, chapter one of the book mm -hmm. originally began with Danica. And I wrote most of it. And I had to stop and take a breath and take a few walks around the block and think about this. We are imprinted, Rick, like, like ducklings <laughs> by the first character we see, by where a book begins, that that person can own the book. They can own us as readers. And this is a young woman with a bow, with a dog, alone at night, in a boat, going out to kill people in revenge for the death of her family. Damn it, Rick, she's going to own you if she starts the book. <laughs> and much as I loved her, much as I want her to get her hooks into you, she's got to be one of five mm. characters that own you. So I ended up rethinking it and starting the book with a different first chapter so that my protagonist could then, after that opening chapter, which kind of sets a context, a stage, my five characters could all roll out in the next chapters, and she's the first of the five, but she doesn't start the book. I was afraid that she would dominate the book if I began <laughs> it with her. Take over your life. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I really like about this book is that it's a, this world is dangerous. It's not too dangerous, though. And I think there's a, a, a very interesting balance to be kept there because on one hand, in books set in this, these kind of settings, there's uh, an understandable inclination to, you know, kill a lot of people from beginning to end. And on the other hand, you want to create a sense, a real sense of danger. So talk about seeking that balance in terms of the plot and also the character interest, because you, there are some <laughs> surprising things that happen in this book. It's a really interesting question. Uh, I think what underlies that question, a conversation about it, is one's view of human nature, one's view of not just the past, but of us today. I am profoundly aware of ways in which life could be and can be uh, nasty, brutish, and short. In fact, the, the passage I read a little bit from right at the top of our conversation is uh, three paragraphs from a couple of pages that actually say exactly that. You could die in a ditch from a fall. The plague took take you. Uh, raiders could steal your children for slavery. The, the risks and dangers of life were everyday risks. But at the same time, the sometimes the most dangerous, threatening contexts bring out the empathy, compassion, honor, courage, sharing in people more than any other time. We see it today when there's a disaster or a crisis somewhere and we see people responding empathetically to the victims of, of that crisis, that I want my books to give, as you suggested, both sides of that equation, uh, violence, danger, hardship, threats, but also uh, kindness, one of my editors said when she finished this, her first note was that I was unprepared for and deeply moved by how much kindness there is in this book. And that, to answer your question, may be where my approach to the world and to fiction differs from some of the works I suspect you're referencing that are almost denials of that aspect of the human condition. They want to alert us to the, to the violence, depravity, uh, random uh, horrors of existence. I'm aware of those, but I'm also aware that they're only part of the equation in our lives. I think, too, that's really interesting because while I will confess that I consume and really like a good murder mystery, a good monster book, uh, you know, a police procedural, and in any of those, a lot of people die, unnatural deaths. 
I myself have never really come close to that. Most people I know never, you know, don't. You might watch a cop show every night of the week and see, you know, by the end of the week, you've probably seen about 15 murders. <laughs> by the end of your life, you might see one if you're unfortunate. And I think that that aspect of this book is really important. I think that fiction can, let's say, undeniably serve a function. We're talking about books or television or film, a function of distracting and entertaining us and being forgettably distracting and entertaining. You know, we finish the book and let's move on to the next book that gets me through the flight I have to take, the, the beach I'm lying on. <laughs> Uh, the, the 20 minutes I have to read on a day when my boss was a complete jerk. And they, there's a real need for those books. But I also really do believe that there's a hunger and a need for books that do that and stick around. I've often said I want to keep you up until that mythical three in the morning hour when you know you have to be awake at seven because you're turning pages but I also want the book to be with you five or 10 or 20 years later with whatever it has to offer to you about the human condition, about the past, about your own life. And to do that, you have to offer a more rounded reading experience than just the disposable entertainment. Guy, you have an interesting and very nuanced notion of politics in this book. And I'd like you to talk about creating the characters who create the politics in this book, because the politics in this book are obviously the result of the humans who enact them. And what's interesting is that the rulers in your books, these are pragmatic people. These are not like monsters, madmen, people who just want to take over the world or unleash destruction, though they may accidentally do so in the process of being pragmatic? Uh, well, monsters exist. Mm -hmm. Political monsters exist without naming names right across the spectrum of uh, global politics. There are uh, figures like those you, you just referenced. I'm more interested in the ones who are ambitious or driven but not insane, if you will. <laughs> uh, so I'm writing from a point of view that my readings in the Renaissance, by the way, if you read in Renaissance history, you will find monsters. You will find psychopaths who uh, killed people to kill people. That's not what this book is about. Hmm. This one is about, as you suggested, I think it's, it's a good word, uh, pragmatic leaders, if not necessarily the emperor, in this case the emperor is inspired by Rudolf of, of Prague, who actually lived about a hundred years later than my setting, but he's such a damnably interesting character <laughs> that I let my quarter turn of history give me an opportunity to bring a similar figure back. He's obsessed with alchemy and uh, mechanical clocks and it's his chancellor who's the pragmatist, who's to some degree running that empire. And he is thinking in the most practical, finance-dominated, he needs enough money to defend his forts against the invading enemy. How does he get that money? What does he have to do in order to achieve that loan that he needs to protect the empire? That sort of thing has always interested me, the compromises and decisions that leaders have to make. But there are also the compromises very ordinary people have to make. Uh, you might hate the man who owns the farm next to yours, but if he's got a daughter and you've got a son, <laughs> and the land is better defended and tilled if it's one piece of property, you might enter into negotiations with that family to marry your children. That's politics, Vic. Mm -hmm. That's politics brought down to the scale of, of family, which is involving some of the same compromises and decisions 
that a chancellor is making when dealing with an ambassador from a country he fears and dislikes, but he needs money from them. We're doing this at every level of society. I think that's a really interesting observation. And I was talking with another writer about this in their books, uh, set in a current day, about how political <clears throat> emotions, political decisions, and political reasoning apply not just at a global level or at a national level, at the level of nations. We do that interpersonally at the absolutely the lowest level. Politics are everywhere. I think the, the line that, that's sometimes quoted is that you have never seen savage, violent, ugly politics unless you have been in a room full of poets trying to resolve some issue. <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but I like that. Uh, it was, it was it's fascinating to me, too. Um, we know these days the world really turns on publicity and how much publicity matters and how everybody has to position themselves and manage their image. But you do that, too, in this book um, with the politics. And I think it's so interesting when we see that happening in a setting that's historically remote from us and with different, completely different level of technology, but understand that the clockwork that's moving the people is the same as the clockwork that's moving the people at uh, doing Nike uh, advertisements. Uh. There's a, there's, it's a good observation, Rick. Uh, one of the things that reading in the Renaissance, and I've done it before because my novel Tigana a long time ago was inspired by Renaissance Italy as well. One of the things that could come home to you is something like commissioning a portrait of yourself, your wife, your family. In the 15th, 16th century, a portrait was a status symbol the way a Ferrari might be a status symbol <laughs> today. Uh, not only might you try to commission the most celebrated artist to come to your court if you were at that level, or to come to your house and paint your wife, but you would, in the contract, Rick, stipulate how much ultramarine blue would be used in the painting and how much gold, because they were the two most expensive colors. So anyone coming into your home and seeing that portrait knew if they see gold and that expensive rich blue in the painting, you are announcing, I'm rich. I've got the money to spend on this painting and look at the blue and gold in the canvas. It's an advertisement. You are broadcasting, just as a Ferrari would today, you are broadcasting your status. It is public relations. You know, uh, I, I like this idea, too, the way you write at one point, no man who understands the twin worlds of commerce and courts would compare any other place to this republic. You marked yourself a fool in doing so. Not that there weren't enough fools enough in this world. And I think that this understanding of, again, seeing the interplay and the intertwining of commerce and governance in this book, especially in Dubrovnik, Dubrava, which is such a great, like, it's really on the fulcrum of a teeter-totter. <laughs> um, geography is sometimes destiny. Oh, and absolutely. many historians, many geographers, to be more precise, have uh, suggested that we underestimate the impact of something like that. Actually, so, you know, I interviewed a fellow who wrote a book called The Revenge of Geography. Absolutely. <laughs> In fact, I read that this winter. Oh, I read you? that after finishing this book, <laughs> The Revenge of Geography, uh, Robert Kaplan. Yeah. Yeah, terrifically interesting book. He's not the first. In a way, Kaplan will be the first to say he is collating and drawing attention to mm -hmm. the writings and thinking of geographers through history. But a book like that, or a thesis like that, is, for me, and I agree with you, uh, sharply focused by a place like Dubrava in my novel, which is inspired by Dubrovnik Ragusa on the, on the coastline of Croatia. Because where they're physically located plays such a role in how they have to deal with the world. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I've explored this in the past in, in Isabel years ago, which is set in, in Provence, the south mm -hmm. of France. Uh, I make the suggestion that the most beautiful parts of the world are sometimes the parts of the world where the most unholy violence has taken place because they're coveted, they're desired. And I've said in interviews back from that book, we don't know of a whole lot of wars for Antarctica. <laughs> Not yet. But we do know thousands of years of violence over places like Mesopotamia or the south of France because there were reasons to desire those places and because they were open and exposed. Mm. This, is, this is part of what's going on in the new novel with a place like Dubrava, which obviously you're hooked on. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you also point too with uh, Dubrava how um, the, the wisdom of peace the, the wisdom and the power of peace, which is an interest, so again, as opposed to war, war is expensive and destructive, costs a lot of money, and you don't get a lot out of it. And so talk about uh, creating that kind of, uh, you know, situation to, again, move this bigger lever of the plot where things, as you're sweeping towards, you know, the events in, later in the book, which I don't want to give away, but I mean, it's fairly uh, great way to build up a, a kind of intense emotion in plot and in terms of the peril the characters are going to be in. Well, it's Dubava, but it's also uh, its rival, more powerful city-state, Seressa, which is inspired by Venice. Mm -hmm. the, the trigger observation that came to me early in my reading was from the great, great French historian, Fernand Bradel, who early in one of his magisterial works, makes the observation that we must not imagine that in times of war and conflict, everyone was engaged in the same way with the desire for war and conflict, that the farmer wants to hope and pray that the soldiers don't come anywhere near his land <laughs> because his crops will be stolen, his livestock will be stolen, his children may be abducted. They don't want that war. They don't want it anywhere near them. Merchants, as you suggest, don't want a war, whatever side they're on, of the political, military, religious divide, because it's really bad for trade. One of the key dynamics of Children of Earth and Sky is that we have a merchant party moving from west to east, from Dubrava towards what used to be Sarantium but has now fallen to the enemy faith, and they're still trading there. There's an army on the move from east to northwest, which mirrors Mehmed the Conqueror in the 15th century heading towards uh, Prague, Venice, Vienna, and that army is massive and deadly and bent on conquest, and at the same moment that army is moving northwest, I've got a party of 15 or so merchants heading to the capital city that sent forth that army to make a little money, to do a little trade. And that is, in fact, what Braudel establishes in his wonderful history of the Mediterranean world, that this is how people acted. This is what we did to survive ourselves. We didn't buy into the grandiose desires and demands of the mighty powers. We were looking to try to get by. And that's the underpinning of this novel, to show you that great war and conflict looming, but also to show you the attitude that people not at the top might have had while that war is coming. Well, a bunch of soldiers and the government sending out a bunch of soldiers, there look, might be some really good customers there. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that, that you learn when you read in history. Not all the great battles were huge armies. Mm. The, the William the Conqueror conquered England with a very small army. The Battle of Culloden, you know, Scotland versus the English, if you ever go up to that battlefield, it's tiny, Rick. 
the number of people who actually fought a pivotal, defining battle that broke the clans and the highlands in Scotland, that's a really small battle. And in this book, there are two sustained set-piece battle scenes, but some people have talked about them as epic. And I raise my eyebrows a little bit because they're written as intensely as I could write them. But if you count up the number of people involved, these are skirmishes. Mm -hmm. These are small conflicts written with, if I've done it right, the intensity that suggests that you can be just as dead in a battle between 50 people as between 50,000. Well, I think this goes too to you have a, an amazing talent for the set pieces in this book. And I think what they don't feel like set pieces to me ever because what, what I've caught up in and when I'm reading them is my concern and care for these characters. You have are so good with characters. You talked earlier that you've never met a secondary character you didn't love just about as much as your main characters. But I think too that you know how to pop them out and pull them back so that when they have their moments they're really memorable but otherwise they're there where they need to be as secondary characters. And I'd like you to just talk a little bit about um, is this something that comes as a matter of careful planning or uh, careful poetry? There are there are dichotomies, Rick. <laughs> we we do a lot of either or when we talk about literature. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you I'll give you the most obvious example. We talk about how uh, a given writer or a given book is plot driven. Mm -hmm. It's about. Uh, a great story and turn the pages and the characters are one-dimensional but that's okay because I'm just reading for the story and then we may talk about some writers who are really good at developing their characters and they have a skill with language but you know it's pretty navel-gazing there's not much happening for me as a reader someone might say I need more plot and we have that dichotomy that we, we often set up in, in how we describe or think about fiction. And it's not a zero-sum game, Rick. To my mind, from right from the start of my career, I've argued, sometimes literally argued, but more often just in the books that I try to bring to readers, that it's my job to give you both. It's, it's the task of an ambitious writer to give you that page-turning narrative, but also to give you characters that you really do care about and language that helps you get both the page-turning quality and the character identification. That does mean, and this is where I need to trust my readers, Rick, it does mean that you have to give the characters room to matter, especially if, as you say, we're working with secondary figures. I want those secondary figures not to just be a third maid of honor from the left <laughs> or, you know, the, the fourth spear carrier in line playing a plot role. I actually end up wanting you to be interested in them because I get interested in them. This is what happens to me. I end up saying, what's she all about? What got her to this point in her life? And it may only be half a page or two pages, but I get interested in these people, and my hope is that the readers will be too. Yeah, no, I would have to say that it would be hard to describe this book as either particularly character-driven or particularly plot-driven. Both of them seem to be happening at the same time through prose that's really deep and involving. And it, there's a kind of a super detailed feel to this that reminds me in in a way, I guess, of British fiction. I don't know why I say that, but that's just... Well, that. you made me very happy saying that. Um, sometimes you'll see, and it's a phenomenon of today, I think, where we're so sped up by a lot of film and television culture that we, we want things fast. Mm. And sometimes you'll see 
reviewers say something like, uh, it has a slow beginning and build up, but if you get through that, I'll say this by many writers, there is a rewarding payoff at the end. What I think needs to be realized is that rewarding payoff isn't in spite of the careful build-up, it's because of the careful build-up. That rewarding emotional psychological payoff comes because you have been given room as a reader to connect to, identify with, become engaged with the people to whom whatever is happening at the end happens. That build-up is necessary mm-hmm. for that payoff. And I would say, actually, too, that encountering from page one characters who involve you and grab you from page one, that's rewarding, too. I mean, that's important. That's part of the journey reader. thing. When we talk about the journey, not the destination, mm-hmm. we're journeying if a writer's doing her or his job. We're journeying with people we care about. Uh, That's also why, and we all have this experience, uh, to get back to deaths, which we seem to be talking about character death a bit this morning, to get back to that. It is so obviously true that the, the death of a single figure who's come to matter to us can resonate and stick around in our mind and emotions so much more than 5, 10, 50 in the kind of book that is just cutting a swath (laughs) through human beings. If you make the character matter, the reader is going to be affected so much more by what happens to them. I think, too, that for me... The one of the things that makes this so interesting is the created setting that is similar to it's for me this none of your books live in the realm of what you might call hard fantasy and the prototypical example there is Lord of the Rings. Very carefully created world. This is not to say your worlds aren't carefully created, but you're also not historical fiction or historical fantasy. You have your own very own space. Part of, I think, the, the effectiveness of this is you have a real facility for creating names that feel real but aren't real, and yet they don't feel created. Uh, talk about that. That seems like that must, you must have put a lot of horsepower into that. To some degree, yes. To another degree, uh, my notebooks get filled with names and variant names as I'm reading primary and secondary sources. So in other words, my straightforward research has a subset of, I'm going to need a lot of character names. And so as I'm reading about people in history, as I'm reading about people in history, I'm either using names or using slight variants of names that feel, as you suggest, appropriate to the places that I'm writing about. Um, Your larger question comment is, Rick, I feel very fortunate. I'm I'm often asked, uh, you know, how do you feel about being categorized this way or that way as a writer? And I don't like categories. I think they Mm -hmm. limit us Mm -hmm. because we we, we squeeze a book or an artist or a filmmaker into a slot or a category, and we risk uh, jamming them into an inappropriate place. Right. But at the same time, I'm very aware how lucky I've been because I've got uh, readers around the world. We're around 30 translation languages now, and I've been doing this for a long time with, with really a strong sense of being rewarded by my readers. But I could so easily have been lost, Rick, because, as you say, I'm not giving the true fan fantasy reader what the standards and tropes of that genre seem to suggest are all the true fantasy reader wants, which is to say the heroic quest, the supernatural animals, the five, six, nine volume 
template of today, because it is. It is. It's a template of today for fantasy. At the same time, I'm not giving the historical fiction reader the year the Treaty of Utrecht was signed. <laughs> You're not going to find that from my books. No, that's true. Nor am I giving the reader who wants uh, literary, lyric, uh, carefully attended to prose the kind of book they're used to finding because this all happens in a quarter-turn near history setting. So I could have fallen between every crack you could name into obscurity. <laughs> and somehow, uh, over the years, there's been built up a, a really wonderful, uh, almost alarmingly passionate core of readers who get what I'm trying to do and give me the luxury of writing the books I want to write at the speed I want to write them, which is to say I need to take time mm, mm -hmm. to do it as well as I can do it. And I've got readers who let me do that. In today's book world, Rick, that is an outright gift from readers to a writer. In today's book world, though, you were ahead of the game because I think over the last 20 years, and I mean, in just even in the time that I've been doing interviews and book reviews, mostly full time, the entire literary world and the world of, quote, pop culture has let in elements of the fantastic, these quarter turns of the fantastic. Those have become admitted more into the mainstream, whereas before they would be reason to lock you out. Now you're in, and I think you were there, you were doing this ahead of time. So it's like you carefully aimed your missile to ant line. I wasn't that smart, Rick. <laughs> I was doing what I was doing, but I think you're right about the culture. I think that uh, I've lasted long enough mm -hmm. to observe and participate in and maybe be a, uh, a canary in the coal mine, if you will, an advanced scout Exactly. For a phenomenon that's that's surrounding us. Two things are going on, though, Rick. One is, as you suggested, uh, pop culture now has elements of the fantastic and of science fiction dead center. They're no longer marginalized to the sort of magazines or books you might have had to hide under your bed way <laughs> back when. They're dead center mm -hmm. uh, in young adult culture and in adult culture. And what goes along with that is that a great many very established, mainstream, award-winning novelists feel free, feel comfortable, feel no stigma attached to using elements of the fantastic or of science fiction in their work because they're no longer marginal. Mm -hmm. So you get both the popular potential of, if you will, middle-brow work but you also get the opportunity given to serious writers to use these elements in serious work. I think it's a double win, in fact. And well, it also allows writers like yourself, who have been taking the elements of genre very seriously and internalizing them in a unique and artistic manner, uh, access to the same audience who has heretofore said, oh, if it has any of that, it's out. Now it's in, not, and I think not just because the pop culture has accepted science fiction more, but also because, as Kim Stanley Robinson once said, we are living in a bad science fiction novel. We are living <laughs> in... Or, or, Who's uh, writing it, Rick? <laughs> uh, I think at this point, it's, it's a collaboration between Kurt Vonnegut and Philip K. Dick at their most sardonic and satiric and, uh, I guess, despairing. <laughs> um, the science fiction analogies, uh, I, I slow down with, because, of course, that's, that's nowhere near where I'm writing. No, no, you're not using that But at I all. do believe that the, uh, the culture, mm -hmm. every culture, every generation, every society, 
reaches for its metaphors, for its symbols. You know, it's been often said that the 50s in America were the paranoia about the uh, the invisible communists among us mm-hmm. produced an entire generation of books and films that were about the enemy we cannot detect. <laughs> that that the, the, the exploration of the real fear of the time as manifested by the metaphors of science fiction or horror. And today, some of that, I think, plays out in dystopic fiction. Mm-hmm. The, the sense that a younger generation may have that uh, between global warming, uh, international chaos and terrorism, my world is dystopic. Mm-hmm. And there's a subliminal draw towards fictions that may work that, not treated as a literal, you live in a dystopic world, but I'm writing about a science fictional or fantasy world, and it catches an inner echo in a generation of readers who feel that about themselves, as you suggest. Well, I think in in terms of this book, where it really captures the, the zeitgeist, as it were, is in the way you um, incorporate, show that the power of ordinary characters, the power of these larger characters who are acting on similar impulses but at different levels, and we but we have access in your books, in this book in particular, to the people who are kind of in the underclass, but there are certainly, we see the overclass and we see how they work too at this, in the, with the same motivations. But to see that kind of intertwining of commerce and politics um, and the need for publicity, the need for self-affirmation, the need for, for confirmation that I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm a person, play out. That's an interesting way to put it. One of the things that I wanted to do in this book also, when you talk about self-affirmation, is to explore uh, female characters trying to find ways to take control of their own lives one way or another. And in fact, they're very different, the several women who are the two in particular, but there are others who are trying in, if you will, the definitive male-dominated cultures to either impact upon larger events or just because it could be damnably hard impact on their own lives, (laughs) take some agenda, some control of their own existence. And this was important to me. This has always been important to me, to be as historically consistent as I can be to the time and place that I'm writing about, but also because it makes for a more interesting book to let the female characters have as much of the stage as the male ones, because that intrigues me, that engages me. It's not a political statement on my part about checkboxes of character types. It's a novelist's desire to engage the reader with all the characters in my book. That's certainly true in this book. the, The two main female characters are so wonderful and you have so much fun with them uh talk about creating them and the way they play off of one another which i think is is really a a critical plot driver to this book and part of the real pleasure of reading this book there's a there's a very early scene in the book where the two main female protagonists one is that that woman in a boat with a bow and a dog she's a raider bent on revenge for the death of her family. The other is a woman who has shamed her family and been consigned to the equivalent of a nunnery and who says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the life I'm going to live for the rest of my existence. I will do whatever it takes to have some control over my own life. And they end up on a boat and they end up, I don't want to spoil too much, but they end up on opposite sides of what happens on that boat. And in the aftermath of the drama, the conflict there, they bond. 
Now, this is insider trading again, but I got a note from one of my editors, the draft I submitted, who queried how quickly these two women come together on that ship. And I paid attention to it because this is a smart person. And I asked uh, three of my other editors, early readers, because I have several in different countries, God help me. Uh, and all three of them said, oh, no, it's, I get it. It works. I understand exactly how the two of them would do that. And the point of the story is the first editor was male and the other three were female. <laughs> Well, I guess. <laughs> so I went with, I went with, not with the majority because I'm too stubborn for that. I went with myself endorsed by the majority. Uh, we also have two uh, powerful moment with a dog. <laughs> and and I, I find this really interesting, the way that uh, writers treat animals in, in fiction because it's, as powerful as human characters are, there's something about you put a dog in a book, and damn, you better be not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, you're the flip side of what you're saying is the fear that some people have written me about over the years or the anger, where they say sometimes writers put a, uh, a wonderful animal in the book just to kill it. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is, in its own way, a really lazy, easy way. Mm-hmm to get to a reader, right? Oh, yeah. You put a child in peril. You, uh, you, you kill an adorable puppy or something. Uh, how are we not going to be affected on the most primal level mm. by something like that? Now, sometimes your plot takes you there. Sometimes that's what it's about, uh, an abducted child. People have written profoundly powerful novels mm -hmm. about that sort of plot. But when you do it, if you will, it's a drive-by thing. When it's not what the book's about, but you use it as a casual, okay, here I'm going to hook a little emotion out of my helpless reader. That's a cheat. Mm. That's cheating. Uh, I don't believe in doing that. Uh, I gave Danica her dog in part because it struck me as appropriate that an otherwise isolated young woman, or it could have been a boy, but in this case it's a young woman, would need and want the companionship she can create for herself, which is her dog. It's also, given remember where we are, which is evoking the 15th century, protection. Mm -hmm. You're moving through the world to a significant degree on your own in a world where you need kin, family, protective circumstances surrounding you. If you don't have those, a very big, capable dog is a pretty good <laughs> alternative. The first, there are two books in, that are set in this setting that are called uh, the Sarantium Mosaic. And I, I love this uh, approach to fiction as to rather than having a, a serial story, essentially one story, one narrative played out over multiple books. You have multiple books that each has its own narrative and each story in it set in a, in a similar setting that's not ours. Do you have any idea, will you return to this setting? Do you have plans to immediately? I have no plans. I am a plan-free novelist in the sense that when I finish one book, I genuinely and truly do not know what the next one will be. Uh, I'm not saying that as a kind of, uh, you'll have to torture it out of me thing. It's, it's not a deflecting response. I get, I've sometimes said, one good idea every three years. <laughs> I have friends who wake up and they can get five ideas for a story while they're brushing their hair in the morning or something like that. Uh, I often forget to brush my hair, so that option's <laughs> gone. Um, I need to let the last book recede, Rick. Mm. It's really important to me that the language and tone of each novel 
be its own language and tone that they not have a bleeding into from the previous oh, Interesting. One. And so the last two books, just as an example, my last two books before Children of Earth and Sky, uh, Under Heaven and River of Stars, are Chinese, Chinese history inspired, the Tong Dynasty and the Sung Dynasty. There's a very specific tone that emerged for me in writing those two books that came from reading uh, in translation, but primary sources and poetry and Chinese historians writing about Chinese history. And that tone is one that I wanted to hint at in the way I wrote those two books. Uh, that would not work in any way for the novel I've just finished for Children of Earth and Sky. And I needed a little bit of time to let the last book, to let River of Stars, if you will, allow me this flow away down the river <laughs> before I began this one. And that time, that space that I know I need is when I'm reading and traveling and sometimes talking to scholars in a period that interests me somewhat to figure out where I'm going next. Uh, because so many times, places, people interest me, but quite honestly, being interested isn't enough because I'm going to live there for three years. I'm going to break my head upon the rocks of whatever problem <laughs> that book gives me. Uh, and I need to have not just interest, but some feeling that I've got something to say, something to add to the materials that I use for my research. I've got something to bring back to you, you know, holding it in my hands in front of me. My gosh, it's a book. <laughs> I've been speaking with Guy Gabriel Kay. His new book is Children of Earth and Sky. Thank you for joining me, Guy. Oh, Rick, it was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.